0: Welcome, guys. We're glad you're here. Uh, We're kind of trying something new tonight, but it's something that I think as we get into this, you're going to realize is something that we really need to talk about as a church. And uh, to to start this out, I want to pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come together as a church family, as a body, and discuss a really important question like this one. Lord, we understand that even though this is a contentious issue And even though this is one that we as Christians disagree on, but we know that you know all things. And Father, we trust that uh, through your Son and through your Spirit, Lord, that you will guide us in wisdom. So Father, we pray for that tonight. Lord, we ask you that you would glorify your name in in our conversations, in our questions and answers. Father, we pray that you would help us to grow in our affection for you in studying something like science. Lord, we thank you for this place and for these people. Lord, we ask your blessing on this night. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here's how we're going to roll tonight. To begin, I'm going to give about 20 to 30 minutes talking about the relationship between faith and science, and then we're going to pause for about 10 minutes. You can get up, stand up, stretch, wake up if you need to, and then we're going to bring our panel up here. And the way we're going to do the questions for the panel is you can text in your question at any time. So if you're in our Wednesday night class, it's the same number. If you're not and you want to write this down or put it in your phone, I'm going to read it to you now and I'll read it again when we begin the panel. The number is 633-0275, 633-0275. You can, begin, you can begin at any point. If you've already got questions, go ahead and send them in, or you can send them as I talk or as we're doing the panel. So I want to begin by talking about what we're trying to do in this talk and what we're not trying to do. So we can handle a lot of the apologetics questions, the specific questions in the Q&A, but what I want to do is step back for a minute and take a look at what we're actually working with. What is the nature of faith and what is the nature of science? What are they both intending to do and how does that relationship between the two work? So the goal of this time, at least at first, is not to make the call on the truth or falsity of Darwinian evolution. We're going to let our panel do that in a minute. It's not to referee between modern genetics and the genealogies found in the Bible. It's not to trace the relationship between miracles and natural law, although these are all questions that flow out of a relationship between science and faith. We don't have time, unfortunately, to discuss Richard Dawkins' writings or the worldwide shortage of straw. That has resulted from his pension for straw men, although that would be enjoyable. But one of my goals is to point out that most of these classic arguments take place between two people who are effectively treading water, each one throwing facts and theories, popular legends and myths at each other without any kind of proper grounding on which to evaluate. What we want to provide tonight is at least the beginning or the contours of a grounding for the discussion between science and faith. We do not want to be people who are treading water when it comes to something as important as this discussion. We're here tonight principally because of two statistics that started to burrow their way into my mind as I'm leading our college ministry and our adult education program. The first one is that while more than 50% of Christians who attend church regularly believe that there are significant conflicts between faith and science, we might assert that it would be more accurate to say the deliverances of science and faith are in conflict and not in concord. So 50% of church going Christians would agree with the statement that science and faith have more con have more disagreement than agreement. Secondly, this is an issue that is especially pertinent with our young people. So in the book You Lost Me, they cite a statistic that 50% of young people wish to go into a health related field. 50%. And of Christians of young people believe that Christians are too confident that they know all of the answers. 31% of Christians believe that Christians are out of step with science. And get this, only 1% of youth and young adult pastors say that they have talked about this issue specifically in the last year. So we have 50% of young people wanting to go into a field related to the sciences. Most of them believe that Christians are too confident that they know what's going on. A lot of them believe that Christians are out of step, and yet only 1% of youth pastors and young adult pastors have done a message or a series directly relating to this concept. That's why we're here. So I want to offer four statements, four proposals for the relationship between faith and science. Number one, Christians historically and biblically make great scientists. Christians historically and biblically make great science. Now, this is not the understood narrative. In fact, this is something that most people statistically disagree with. Maybe this is because of the horror stories that are passed along about figures like Galileo and Darwin. We probably have our own that we hate, that we hear a lot. Uh, Maybe it's the, the, the church's persecution of Galileo's innocent attempts just to look at the universe through his telescope. Or maybe it's that pesky myth of Darwin's deathbed confession that keeps rearing its head in these conversations. But actually, most of history illustrates an accord between people of faith and scientific investigation. I want to start by talking about this biblically. So in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. That is a faith and science claim that we'll spend more time talking about later. But actually, the place to start with science in the Bible is later in the Garden of Eden. When God creates Adam and Eve, He puts them into the garden, and whether you think that that's literal or figurative, one of the things that we understand about His role and His idea for humanity comes when He gives them a job to do. This is before sin has entered the world. This is before they're expelled from the garden. God says, your role is to work it and to keep it. In fact, some translations say your role would be to cultivate it. And so from that passage we get a sense of this thing called the cultural mandate that one of the reasons that we have been placed here on the earth is to cultivate the earth. Now that extends into every discipline. We get the word culture from this same root. We are supposed to build infrastructure. There's a reason biblically why we begin in a garden and we end in a city. Because the project of humanity is cultivation. Now, science is part of the cultural mandate. We have been given a charge by God to investigate, to build, to modify, to expand, to categorize things. This is part of what it means to be human. And we see this done in the Bible in several different circumstances. Now, maybe these are passages that we typically skip over, but I believe that these are passages that endorse the scientific picture of the cultural mandate. We begin probably with the easiest reference, which is that of King Solomon. We know that King Solomon was a scientist. It says in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29, and then 33 to 34, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke of beasts, of birds, of reptiles, and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Now if I were to read you this list about a modern public intellectual, we would consider them a scientist. They're writing about things like trees, plants, beasts, birds, reptiles, and fish. And in fact, it was a service to the world. It was it was an extension of the cultural mandate for Solomon to investigate these things. Secondly, we see this happen when Daniel and his friends are taken to Babylon. It says in in chapter 1, verse 17 of Daniel, And as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Now, we're not just talking about the Babylon Awana program here. We're not just talking about Bible sword drills. This really means he gave them understanding in the greatest uh, literature and wisdom of the day. They were intellectuals. They were scientists. Lastly, one of the things that popped out to me recently is when God is questioning Job in in the last part of the book of Job, he asks Job a total of 160 questions through that book, ranging from astronomy to zoology. In fact, in that sense, we see God as a picture of an intellectual, of a knower, of a scientist. One of our guiding principles in this discussion of faith and science comes in Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This underlying principle gives us confidence that as we engage in scientific investigation, we are actually doing the work that the Lord has given us to do on the earth. We're fulfilling the cultural mandate. We're following in the steps of these characters. We're actually investigating something that is at the same time very scientific and very spiritual. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All the ologies, this is a paraphrase, all of the ologies can be used to glorify God. Now, this is the biblical case. The historical case is a little bit easier to make. If you just go through the annals of of scientific history, you come after name after name after name of people who have done science and glorified God. Just to name a few, you think of major figures. Maybe for some of us, this takes us back to our high school textbooks. People like Boyle and Kepler, Newton, Leibniz, Euler, Linnaeus, Faraday, Maxwell, Kelvin, Planck, von Braun, and today people like Francis Collins, who are an example of strongly committed Christians doing their scientific duty out of reverence and for the glory of God. If you're a Christian pursuing the sciences, then my first contention is there is a great cloud of witnesses testifying to the role of Christians doing excellent science. So point number one is Christians historically and biblically make great scientists. Number two, the assumptions underlying the scientific method are best supported by a theistic worldview. The assumptions underlying the scientific method are best supported by a theistic worldview. I want to recommend to you guys a resource if you're looking for a technical treatment of this issue. You probably can't do any better than the book called Where the Conflict Really Lies by Alvin Plantinga. His thesis in this book is there is superficial conflict but deep concord between science and theistic religion. Right? There's superficial conflict but deep concord between science and theistic religion. But there is superficial concord and deep conflict between science and naturalism. The book is called Where the Conflict Really Lies by a guy named Alvin Plantinga. So he's going to make the argument that although on the surface it doesn't seem this way, there are actually at the deep level more, co- more concord between science and religion, theistic religion, than there are between science and the assumed worldview of naturalism. There are three major reasons that this is true. Number one, knowability. Number one is knowability. If you believe that God created the world, then one of the things that follows is that you believe that it would be intelligible to His creatures. This can be seen in one of the often overlooked stories in the opening chapters of Genesis. This is a a story that I hadn't heard taught on since VBS, but it's an important story if we're going to understand the intelligibility of the world. After Adam is put in the garden, one of the things that God does is He parades all the creatures— in front of him, and Adam begins to name the creatures. Now again, whatever you make of this story, one of the principles that's being illustrated is that creation is recognizable, categorizable, and articulable. And Adam demonstrates this by naming the animals. Essentially, there is concord between the structure of the universe that we can observe and the mental apparatus we've been given for perception. Have you ever wondered why you can look at the universe and actually make sense of it? Do you ever wonder why there are things like abstract entities? Let's take like the number three. What is the number three, and why does it exist? Well, from a theistic worldview, it's because the world has been created in such a way that matches the way that our brains have been created, and thus the universe is knowable. The major difference between theism and naturalism then when it comes to science and investigation is that a theistic framework promises truth claims about the universe, whereas a naturalistic system only promises pragmatic adaptability. So, on one hand, we say the reason that our senses match the universe from a theistic standpoint is because that's what's actually true about the universe, But from a naturalistic standpoint, the only thing that it can really offer is the reason that our minds can recognize the things that we observe is because we have adapted in such a way to draw pragmatic value from our observations. What makes us think that pragmatically adaptive things are actually true? This is a concern if you have a theistic worldview. So the first thing that we see is as a deep concord between science and theistic religion is knowability. Secondly, we see reliability and regularity. This is not just about the existence of regular laws of nature. That's our knowability point. This is about our ability to discover and articulate regular laws of nature. For example, we believe that if I were to drop something right now, like this pen, most of us, if we're betting people, which we're not because we're at church on a Sunday night, but if we were betting people, we would bet that it would hit the ground. And that's not something that you could even take the opposite in Vegas. It probably, there probably wouldn't even be a line on that. But we believe that if I drop this pin, it's going to hit the ground. And the point that I'm making here is if we, if we ask ourselves what fundamental underlying commitments do we have, we truly believe that the universe is reliable, the laws that we've discovered are reliable and regular. We don't seem to live in a place where the majority of things that we observe are random and inconclusive. Because of that, it leads us to believe that maybe there is a mechanism behind this that ensures reliability and regularity outside of the powers of observation. So first we have no ability Second, we have reliability and regularity. And third, we have the principle of induction. The principle of induction is essential to the scientific method. Essentially, what we say in induction is, if the past has been a certain way with with this kind of regularity, and if we can know that, then we should assume that the future will be that way as well. So the principle of induction is the thing that enables us to create natural laws, because essentially induction is probabilistic. So we believe that the future will resemble, with a high degree of precision, the past. There's nothing that actually guarantees that this is true from a naturalistic worldview. In fact, we'll take David Hume, who's about as good as a naturalist as anybody. In his philosophy of science, he rejected the principle of induction because there is no deductive reason and no deductive proof that induction actually works. In the same way, he rejected the principles of cause and effect outright, because they do not and cannot be proven from a materialistic system. Now, they can be assumed as axiomatic truth, but they cannot be proven within a naturalistic worldview. It goes without saying that the scientific method, which we'll talk about in a minute, is absolutely built on the principles of knowability, reliability, and induction. And so, Plantinga argues, and I agree, in our second point, that the assumptions underlying the scientific method are best supported by a theistic worldview. Number three, the role of science is to give us accurate models of the world. The role of science is to give us accurate models for the world. Probably the major hang-up between science and faith is the roles that we have ascribed as a culture to each of these disciplines. Now, this is probably fairly different on the popular level and on the scientific level, but most of the arguing these days is done on the popular level, where science has been given the role of asserting truth claims. And in essence, what's been done when that's being argued is there is a confused role about facts and values. In an article published in December about three weeks or a month ago at, at, the, at the website 538, the title is, Is It Possible to Do Sound Science? This is their lead science writer asking the question, is it actually possible to do objective science? One of the scientists that he quotes is named Michael Carolyn from the Colorado State University. He specializes in the sociology of scientific knowledge. He says this, While the controversies between fact and value may appear on the surface to rest on disputed questions of objective fact, beneath often reside differing positions of value, values that can give shape to differing understandings of what the facts actually are. The science writer for 538 says this, what's needed in these cases isn't more and better science but mechanisms to bring the hidden values to the forefront of the discussion so that they can be debated transparently. In conclusion, they write, these controversies are really about values, not facts. And acknowledging that would allow us to have more truthful and productive debates. What would that look like in practice? Instead of cherry-picking evidence to support a particular view and insisting that the science points to a desired action, The various sides could lay out the values they're using to assess the same group of evidence. Now, this is not a Christian site, and they're not talking about Christian things. They're talking about the fact that in our culture now, you have debates between scientists over what the same pool of data actually means. Part of our problem in the relationship between science and faith is we've confused the fact that we can all have the same data set and not have the same interpretation, and that interpretations of data are not controlled by data, they're controlled by values. So what they recommend is bringing our values to the front so that we can discuss those openly so that we can actually pick which theories best fit our data. I want to go a step further and talk a little bit more about the nature of the scientific method. Science, and more specifically, the scientific theory, uh, the, the the discipline of scientific theory selection, relies on what's called hypothetico deductive method. This is defined as a procedure for the construction of a theory that will account for the results obtained through direct observation and experimentation, and will, through inference, there's our principle of induction predict further effects that can then be verified or disproved by empirical evidence derived from experiments. So, the hypothetical deductive method essentially says that we can use data to construct theories, and then we can use those theories to test and experiment and infer about future results. This is the way that science is done. So, most of us learn this at some point in elementary school. What is the first step of the scientific method? Ask a question, develop a hypothesis, go through some data, adjust your hypothesis, reach a conclusion. These are the broad frameworks of the scientific method. Most of us, though, think that the scientific method is inverted. So in order to to explain this, I want to introduce you to my favorite philosopher of science, Sherlock Holmes. Imagine science basically being done the way that Sherlock Holmes approaches mysteries. So my favorite, my favorite Sherlock Holmes story is The Scandal in Bohemia. This is the only story that features Irene Adler, his arch nemesis and love. He says in this story to Watson, who's always jumping ahead like he does, he says, I have no data yet, Watson. It's a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. Most of us believe that the way science is done is by collecting data and then objectively asserting the only possible theory that could possibly fit the data. But most of us, and as much as I love Sherlock Holmes, most of us have probably read this and think, but what if he was wrong about that one tiny detail? You remember the time that he, that he can tell that Watson fought in Afghanistan because of the kind of soot on his coat? And you say, but what if he was wrong? Because we all know that there are more than, there's more than one theory that can suit a set of data. And so Sherlock Holmes is an interesting investigation into science, but not actually a good way to think about science broadly. We can't claim that we simply use the only theory available to explain facts. The problem is there are so many theories that can explain these facts. There are two criteria then that we must invoke when it comes to theory selection. Number one, intellectual virtues. What kind of intellectual would assert this kind of theory? These would include things like, on the positive side, humility, integrity, and truth. These are intellectual values across the disciplines. On the negative side, the cynical ones of us would think about things like, what's going to be able to get grant funding? What's going to get tenure? What's going to get published? Sometimes these things overlap, and sometimes they don't. The second thing that we must use in, in, in uh, articulating and figuring out which theory fits the data best is falsifiability. Now, this is the buzzword in science. The reason that the truth claims of, of faith cannot be accepted is they're not falsifiable. Well, they're also not science. So when we come to science, one of the ways that we determine which theory adequately fits the data is we look at what is falsifiable, what can be tested. This is where the theory uh, of the hypothetical deductive method comes in. This is a simple logical system. The way that science is done is a simple syllogism. If H, then D. If we have a hypothesis and it's a correct hypothesis, then we should be able to produce a certain amount of data that fits that hypothesis. Now, we already did a scientific experiment earlier. I just didn't complete it. We have a hypothesis based on our past experience that if I drop this pin, then the principle of gravity will take it to the ground and it will hit. So I'm going to test our hypothesis. It's true. So what I said earlier is we usually go, if D, if we have a certain set of data, then we assert hypothesis. But the hypothetical deductive method, and in fact, the scientific method says, no, we have a hypothesis that there is this thing called gravity, which makes pins fall to the ground, and now I'm going to collect some data by testing that, and if that data is true, then what? Then nothing. Nothing here's what we often do. if If we affirm D, so we say if H, then D, and we say D, we got the data that we wanted, we still can't say that our hypothesis is true. All that we can say at that point is that our hypothesis is not false yet. See, this is what happens. If we, if we affirm that, if we say, if we get that data, then our hypothesis must be true, that would be like saying, if you're a Jedi, that's my hypothesis, then you wear a robe. Okay, so now I'm going to go out and get some data, I show up in my bathrobe, and that does not make me a Jedi. But that's the exact same thing we do if we say, we've got this data, that must prove our hypothesis. My hypothesis is, all Jedis wear robes. I'm wearing a robe but I'm not a Jedi. If we, if we actually abide by the scientific method, then what we, what we can say is all data can do is disprove your hypothesis so that you can add a new set of data and come up with a better model for the world that we live in. The role of science is essentially to give us more and more and more accurate models for the universe that we live in, not to prove and assert truth claims. Point number four, we should seek to do science Christianly rather than settle for being Christians who do science. We should seek to do science Christianly rather than settle for being Christians who do science. One of the major rifts in the discussion between faith and science is the worldview of naturalism. And I want to divide this, and this is really common in the literature between metaphysical naturalism, so that's like the beginning of Cosmos, where Carl Sagan says, the universe is all there is, or was, or ever will be. That's called metaphysical naturalism. And Essentially, you're saying there is nothing beyond the material world. The universe is all there is, ever was, or ever will be. But there is actually a second kind of softer naturalism, and this is called methodological naturalism. So this means that we do science in such a way that we assume naturalism, but we don't necessarily believe it. Eugenie Scott, who's the former director of the National Center for Science Education, defined it this way, science neither denies or opposes the supernatural, but ignores the supernatural for methodological reasons. This sounds like a pretty good definition actually. Science neither denies or opposes the supernatural but ignores the supernatural for methodological reasons. This has really been the substance of the arguments mounted against teaching intelligent design in schools. It's not scientific. It's not methodologically naturalism. It asserts things that under this definition are foreign to science. In order to to arbitrate between this dispute, we need to understand what data set we're working with under methodological naturalism and under theism. So most of us would probably agree, we as believers, as Christians, cannot be metaphysical naturalists. That means that we cannot believe that there's nothing out there beyond what you can observe. So the fundamental claims of Christianity actually contradict this directly. We can't believe that all you see is a material universe because we believe that we have spirits. We believe in a God who created this, who is also a spirit. We believe that God actually came and entered into space and time in the incarnation and died, and he is actually reigning eternally, not in a physical place, but in a spiritual reality with a resurrection body. Those things all contradict metaphysical naturalism. But the question for us really is, as Christians, can we do science under the premise of methodological naturalism? The important thing for us to consider is that we, as Christians, have a larger set of data and explanatory mechanisms than a methodological naturalist. So a methodological naturalist believes that only natural things can explain everything that goes on in the universe. Now, one of the things, and C.S. Lewis makes this argument in his book on miracles, one of the things that gets very difficult here, and there are people on both sides of this is, but what about things like moral judgments? What about things like beauty and love? Are there natural explanations for that? Now, we have naturalists who would say, absolutely, we can explain those things naturally. But this is where the rub begins. What set of data are we actually using to explain the things that we experience as human beings if we deny that we have to be methodological naturalists our gut instinct is to say well then that's not really science anymore like if you if you deny that we should just explain things naturally then when we get to a question like electrons, let's say, and probability clouds, and we're not exactly sure where all these electrons are at the same time, but we can give you a probabilistic model that says so. Well, then, what's to stop us from just asserting something like, well, actually, electrons are subatomic vehicles driven around by demons? That's not very good science. What's to stop us from just asserting all kinds of things that no, science would be, no scientist would believe ever? Ever? Well, the distinction is that we as Christians don't believe that we have a different data set. We just believe that we have a bigger data set. So as Christians, we reject methodological naturalism, although we believe that we have to play with the same data sets as every other person doing science. So we as Christians don't believe that we have an, an ulterior set of data. We believe that we encompass the data that a methodological naturalist is using and we add some that is consistent with our theological beliefs. What we do is we use all of the available data to our advantage in science. I want to bring bring my fourth point to conclusion with a quote from Alvin Plantinga in his address, Advice to Christian Scholars. He says, indeed, the same argument that we should use all of the available data holds for thousands of different topics and concerns. If we want to understand love, or knowledge, or aggression, or our sense of beauty, or humor, our moral sense, our origins, or a thousand other things, if it is important to our intellectual and spiritual help to understand the universe we live in, then what we must do is use all that we know, not just some limited segment of it. Why should we be cowed into trying to understand these things from a naturalistic perspective? So, the argument here is simplicity itself. As Christians, we need and want answers to the sorts of questions that arise in the theoretical and interpretive disciplines. And in an enormous number of these cases, what we know as Christians is crucially relevant to coming to a proper understanding. Therefore, we Christians should pursue these disciplines from a specifically Christian perspective. What we endeavor to do in the relationship between science and faith is simple, and yet it applies to some of the most complicated disciplines known to man. We venture into the most complicated areas of the universe knowing that our faith and the scientific method are not at odds if they're construed correctly. We strive to be the best scientists we can be, all the while holding fast to the conviction that God created all of this and in Him is the source of knowledge. In addition, we strive to construct the most accurate, enduring, and predictive models we can through examining, testing, and developing new methods of inquiry. As we do science, we pray to God and we thank Him for giving us minds that can actually think and reason and investigate. We thank Him for hearts that can praise Him and souls that will come into full knowledge in eternity with Him. In short, to sum up the relationship between faith and science, we strive to do science Christianly for the good of our brothers and sisters and ultimately for the glory of God. Thank you. We're going to take about a 10-minute break. We're going to have our panel up here, and then we're going to answer any questions you guys have that are about this topic or others relating science and faith. The number, again, is 633 7-5. We'll take 10 minutes and then we'll open it up for questions with our panel.